you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn them to John chapter 7. We'll be reading soon from verse 25. It is not much to say that we live in an age of information. Everything that we could possibly want to know seems to be available at our fingertips. You can watch a video from somebody playing a sport halfway around the world with minimal lag and see them in real time. We can get updates from events in the world 24-7 through media and news coverage. We can be in touch with people who are across the world with one fingertip on a phone. We have access to libraries worth of information without leaving the privacy of our living rooms. As soon as you need information, you can find it. And if you need information, you can find it with about 40 other thousand people per second because that's how many people ask Google something every single second. 40,000. How much information is actually on the internet? It's, it's almost hard to fathom. It's impossible to fathom. It's about 1 million exabytes. That is 1 million billion billion bytes. So if you took a billion pieces of information and then you took a billion of those, so 1 billion pieces of information, put them in a block, grabbed a billion of those, put them in a block, and then grabbed another million of those and put them in a block. That block would hold the amount of information that the internet currently has. Something like 10 with 24 zeros behind it. So much information that if you were to take CD-ROMs, which for those of you who don't know are these small circular disks with holes in the middle of them that are really, really thin, okay? I wish I could figure out what it would be for floppy disks, but I didn't have time to do the calculation. But for CD-ROMs, if we were to put all of that information on CD-ROMs and we were to stack the CDs on top of one another, we could go all the way to the moon and a quarter of the way back, which is hard to fathom because we can't even fathom the distance to the moon. It's 275 thousand miles worth of CDs, which we would eventually lose and throw away. That is a lot of information. It's all at our fingertips. We can get to almost every bit of it. And we are an incredibly ignorant and stupid lot of people. That's just the way it is. You are, I am. It doesn't matter if you're redeemed, if you're out in the world. There is so much information that we don't know. We have it there but we don't know it. Our knowledge of history is woeful. Our knowledge of science is minimal. Our ability to think, most importantly, about ourselves rightly, and even more importantly than that, about God, is incredibly limited. One wonders, honestly, outside of cat videos and streaming Netflix, what good the internet has done for us. So the question before us today is, how much do we really know? How ignorant are we about really important things. Sure, all the trifling facts and information you want to find out about the, the team that won the World Series in 1935, you can find that information online. But how much really, truly important things do we know? How much of those things do we know? How much can we know about God? I mean, we might scoff at medieval scholars for debating how many angels fit on the end of a pin. But how much time do we spend finding information and facts about things that are absolutely worthless in the long run. Turns out, don't mean to spoil everything for you, but we know next to nothing. The fall has ruined our memories. The fall has ruined our processing. The fall has ruined everything about us. We are computers that think and work very poorly. We don't keep the information that comes in. We don't process the information that comes in. We can't make sense of the information that comes into us very well at all. We don't even understand who we are very well. 
how are we ever supposed to understand the world or God who is in heaven? The last time we talked, Jesus was helping us to see the importance of good teachers. We saw that what commends and what confirms a good teacher is the word of God. His goal or contribution was to make others recognize the glory of God. The question that comes to us is how monumental of a task is that? How monumental is a task to be a teacher of the word of God? How, how much information do we need to impart? Can people get at most of that information? It turns out it is an exceptionally large one. The Bible says that it's akin to making dead people come alive and making people be born again, to resurrecting them and performing miracles. And today we, we have the luxury of seeing why that is. So if you would read with me from verse 25 through verse 31. And note as we read through this how many times these people speak of knowing something. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I am from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and of him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Indeed, this is the word of our God. People continually talk about what they know, what the authorities know, what we know. Jesus is, I think, if we read the text rightly, angry about this. You think you know me? You honestly know who I am and you know where I'm from. Why is he upset? What are the indicators that we don't know quite as much as we seem and why is this so important to Jesus? We know much but we don't know much about what's important because sinful human knowledge is rooted in uncontrolled confusion. The first point I want to think through with you is that we have uncontrolled confusion. Last week, Jesus claimed that the crowds were trying to kill him, that the authorities were trying to kill him. And in verse 20, we read this. The crowd answered him, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you, as though they had never heard of such a far-fetched thing. Who is trying to kill you? No one's out to kill you. And indeed, we would think that the brothers, back all the way at the beginning of chapter 7, would have assumed the same thing. They weren't necessarily against Jesus. They weren't sending Jesus up to Jerusalem in order that he might be slaughtered. They had no idea that people were out for him. All the way back in chapter 5, people have been seeking to kill Jesus in Jerusalem. But it seems like not everyone got that message. Jesus recognized it, and he knew that people were out to kill him, and that's one of the reasons why he delayed in going up. As he said back in 7.1, he didn't go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. But the crowds and the brothers seem not to have known. Or did they? Back up in verse 13, it says that the crowds refused to speak out about Jesus because they wouldn't want to speak for fear of the Jews. 
So there was something. That some people in the crowd knew something. They didn't want to voice their complaints or their approval because they were afraid of something. But then some of the crowds say, we don't know who's trying to kill you. No one's trying to kill you. And then immediately here in verse 25, five verses down from what we just read, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? Now, you can think through that and you can say, well, maybe John is just confused. Okay, maybe John is just confused. Maybe he doesn't realize what he's writing. At this point in time, I would refer you back to Hermeneutics 101, where one of the chief and most basic assumptions of the text of the Bible is this. The biblical authors weren't stupid. Okay? They weren't ignorant of the difficulties of their text. John isn't writing this saying, well, the crowds didn't know. They kind of knew. Well, they didn't know. But some of them really did know. He's painting a picture for us on purpose. It's not John who is confused. It's the crowd who's confused. The crowd's confused because some of them don't know information that others do. Some know that information, but one wonders how they know in that information. Where did that come from? Do they actually know who's seeking to kill Jesus? What, what are the reasons behind the seeking to kill Jesus? Some were in the dark thinking that Jesus was just some sort of demoniac who was all haughty and privileged. But others know. No matter how you slice it, there's confusion amongst the people about how the authorities are relating to Jesus, about what their intent is. I don't think that this is terribly much different than the events that surround our daily lives. How many times have we had a news report brought to us only to have it clarified days later and made it seem like it's not really what it was? Videos are released and then more of the video is released that completely changes the tenor of that video. News reports come out, headlines come out, which tweak and twist and turn the facts so that they are reported in a certain light. This is how all reports must happen, by the way. There's no neutral reporting. Neither CNN nor Fox News nor anybody else can report news neutrally. And so as a whole, we're left with complete confusion. When we see events, when we think through events, when we hear news reports, no matter where those things are coming from, we have to ask whether or not these things are true or not. We have to ask how they're being reported. How can we actually get at the information, no matter how much internet is out there? Made even more troublesome is the fact that we always think we have good stuff. That if we just strap enough cameras on people, we'll know the truth because film doesn't lie. As it turns out, film lies all the time. It's easy, easy to doctor films. How are we going to think through whether an action was right or wrong? How are we going to think through whether an action was moral or immoral? How are we going to think through anything when we are left to our own devices to try and figure out what has actually happened? We are no less confused than the Jews are. We're no less confused than the crowds are. We can't get right information. We can't get good information. We always must rely on something other than human knowledge to get the information we need. But perhaps this is where we can clarify. Perhaps we can get through the confusion by using reason. This is where a lot of our society lands. We've got these issues, we've got problems, and so what we need to do is we just need to educate people. We need to use our reason, and by using reason, we can reach good and right conclusions, and people will obviously come alongside that. So we're going to educate. We're going to educate people about bullying, And if we educate people about bullying well enough, it will put an end to bullying. We're going to educate people about racism, and it will eventually put an end to racism. We're going to educate people about oppression, and it will put an end to oppression. That will never 
work. That will never work. Human knowledge is rooted in unreasonable reason. Secondly, unreasonable reason. One of the reasons why that will never work is because reason is unreasonable. Most of the time, reason is unreasonable. Listen to the logic that these people are using to come to what should be seen as a good conclusion. They say, here he is, speaking openly. They know that Jesus is being threatened to be killed. Okay? So they know that somebody wants to kill him, and they know that those are the people in authority. So they know that the people in authority want to kill Jesus, but they say, listen, he's out here in the middle of the temple, and the man's speaking openly, exactly what the brothers had asked him to do, and exactly the reason why Jesus didn't want to go was to speak openly, and yet here he is speaking openly, and the authorities are doing nothing. And so the people reason to themselves, if the authorities are doing nothing, and this guy is speaking openly, and deceiving some people perhaps, leading them in the truth, what, are, what conclusions are we to draw about the authority's relationship to Jesus? They draw what seems to be a very good one. They say, could it be that the authorities know that he really is the Christ? That seems like an incredibly logical and reasonable and rational conclusion to draw. If they're not arresting him and he's there in the open and they know about him, they must approve of him or they would act on it. Yet because John has pulled back the curtain for us and we see Oz pulling all the levers, we know very well that that's not the right conclusion. They're not doing it because they think that he's the Christ. As a matter of fact, by the time we get to the end of this, they are going to try and do it. That reasonable conclusion is shown to be totally false. In every way, shape, or form, it could have been. They landed using good reason, using good logic, 180 degrees from where they ought to have been. This is the problem with all reason. Every ounce of reason that you can muster is only as good as your starting point. It's only as good as the information you bring in. And as long as that information is horribly complicated, and as long as that information is horribly confused, you will never, ever be able to logically think right through things. We don't like this. We like to think that you can deduce stuff. This is why Sherlock was such a wonderful show on the BBC. Sherlock would look at somebody and he would watch how they walked and looked at how they handled their phone and he would be able to tell them their entire life story just by deducing facts from it. You know why people aren't actually like that in the real world? Because that's not the real world. Things don't work like that. You can't draw conclusions and deductions from the way a person holds their phone about their relationship with their father. It never works like that. Reason is ultimately always limited. Listen, if you grew up in Michigan, let's do, a, let's do a little test. You grew up here, in this place, and everything looked the same around here, but there were no other people. And you didn't ever leave this area. And you're going to be able to look around and you'll be able to see through fields pretty far, but eventually you're going to reach trees. But everywhere you look, because this is where we are in Michigan, it's all pretty flat. It's not unreasonable. As a matter of fact, it would be very reasonable to assume that the rest of the earth is flat. That as far as the land goes, it never rises or falls too much. Now, sorry to break it to those of you who are flat earthers here, but that's not actually true. The earth does have curvature. It's dead wrong. And not only does the earth have curvature, but it has mountains and it has valleys and it has hills and it has lakes. And there, there are all kinds of things like that where, where the land changes its terrain. 
Does that mean that the person was unreasonable in their conclusions? Absolutely not. That's the use of reason. You take the information that is given to you and you draw conclusions from it. What would have been unreasonable is to look at Flatland and say, I bet you the Earth's curved. That's actually unreasonable, but that's the right conclusion. Reason will never, ever actually get us to the truth. These people think that they're using good reason, but they're horribly mistaken. Their conclusions are all wrong. Friends, you cannot rely on unreasonable reason. Don't think that you can understand God based on information that you have collected from the outside world, based on what other people have told you, based on what you see in humanity, what you think you are seeing or what you think you understand from the way that people act. You can't get good information here. And so because of that, you are always, always going to be led astray by reason. But perhaps, perhaps, there are some people who are more in the know they have access to information that we don't have. They're more astute in their observations or they, they are able to collect more data. Perhaps these people could lead us in the right direction. That also seems false. We don't have true knowledge because sinful human knowledge is rooted in, number three, untrustworthy teachers. It's rooted in untrustworthy teachers. Not only are they drawing false conclusions, but the implication of that conclusion is if the authorities are buying into him as the Christ, then he must be the Christ. The exact contra-example to that is, if the authorities don't think he's the Christ, then he must not be the Christ. They are relying on these authorities to tell them what is true and what isn't. Maybe the authorities know better. They know scripture better. They're supposed to be the judges over Israel. So we can rely upon them. As a matter of fact, we have to rely upon them because they know things that we don't know. They're in the know. So let's send out and see what they think. Let's reason to, to see maybe what, what they've got. As Jesus taught us last week, these teachers are wholly untrustworthy. Now there are trustworthy teachers out there. If you need to learn art, you want art history, you want to learn how to draw, you want to learn how to paint, go to an art teacher. I, I guarantee you, you will learn more than you know now. If you want to learn music, go to somebody who knows music and can teach that. Math, science, history, literature. There are trustworthy teachers out there. But in our basic state, there are no trustworthy teachers when it comes to God. There are none. Zip, zero, zilch. None of us in our own knows enough about God. We cannot reason, we cannot deduce, we cannot get at information to be able to portray the image of God and the right relationship to God that every single one of us needs in order to be happy and at peace. If you want to know the most important things in this world, who God is, what he is like, who Jesus is, how Jesus relates to the Father, how we can relate to the Father through Jesus, none of that information is available by people's own natural inclinations and their own good thoughts. None of it. There are so many people in authority who claim through reason or through proof that they know or understand something about God. They've had visions. They've dreamed dreams. They've worked out the proofs. But all of this is utter nonsense. I don't care if they've had visions and I don't care if they've dreamed dreams. Men and women on their own have no access to God other than what you and I have. And there's no reason to think that what they have said is true and good and right. These teachers are not trustworthy. 
are our teachers more trustworthy? To be honest, no. They're not. You shouldn't trust what I say, to be honest with you. Now, for those of you who are following kind of what I'm saying, you might say, well, okay, sure. We know you're full of it sometimes, and we know that you're airheaded sometimes, and we know that you're not always speaking what's right. But there are times in which you say the word of God, and that is good. That is right. And so we can trust you where you match the word of God. And I would say, that's good. That's a start. The problem is that they were doing the same thing. And the problem is that people all over the place are doing the same thing. Let me be very clear. There are people this morning who are sitting down and they're gathering together and they've got their Bibles on their laps. It's opened. A man is getting up and he is speaking to them or a woman is getting up and she is speaking to them and she is trying to make sense or he is trying to make sense of the words that are in front of them. And they are found in Mormon churches and they're found in Jehovah's Witnesses churches, uh, kingdom halls. They are found all over the place. Liberal theology, modalist, oneness Pentecostal people, all of them are gathering and all of them are destined for hell because they don't know how to read the scripture that's in front of them. It isn't enough. It isn't enough to think that we've got the word of God and therefore we're always going to be okay. Four, because we are unreliable, unreliable reading. Sinful human knowledge is rooted in unreliable reading. They say in verse 27, we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he's from. They say, listen, this is more tradition than it is scripture. There's no scripture that really says that, but it's tradition that was passed down to them. And they thought not that the Messiah would come like a bolt out of the blue, but that he would appear and, and kind of would come out of nowhere, that, that you wouldn't really know where he came from. He'd just kind of walk out of the desert, a fully formed man or something like that. And they say, but this gentleman, we know he's from Galilee. We know because he started his ministry in Galilee, but, but we expect the Messiah to appear differently. The problem is that this is an incredibly, incredibly large misreading of Scripture because the Scripture does indeed tell us where the Messiah comes from. In Micah 5.2, Micah prophesies this. He says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephaphthra, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And they say, well, we are not going to know where he's from. Scripture clearly says where he's from. And it's not just them. Fast forwarding all the way over to verse 52, the leaders reply to Nicodemus and say, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. That is horribly false. I mean, that is horribly false. What they've said there is an outright lie. And more than that, I think that they know that it's a lie. Jonah, Nahum, both came from Galilee. They know that it's a lie. So why did they say it? They said it because they're angry, because of resentment, because of frustration, because they just don't want it to be true. See, this is the problem. You are sinful. I am sinful. So even if God gives us a perfect revelation, which he has done, we cannot get the right information out of there because the filter that it goes through soils it so badly that by the time it actually becomes information for us, it's rotten. Listen, we can take all of our information in CD-ROMs and we can stack it like a Tower of Babel up to heaven and it's never going to get us there. 
And like the Tower of Babel, it's only going to collapse. We are confused. We cannot reason as we ought to do. We cannot trust teachers to lead us to God because they show in their sin that they cannot read Scripture well. Ultimately, this leaves us with one conclusion. We cannot know God. You cannot know him. We don't know how to respond to Jesus. We don't know how to relate to the Father. We don't have knowledge of God because sinful human knowledge is based, fifthly, on unfathomed fatherhood. We cannot fathom the nature of God. His fatherhood is unknowable to us. Jesus, as I've said, I think has his ire raised here. The ESV sells this a little short. In verse 28, it says, Jesus proclaimed. It's probably along the lines of, he, he cried out. He had already been teaching in the temple, so it's not like he needed to raise his voice here. But for the first time in the book of John, Jesus has been talked about as though he has said to people, he has answered people, but this is the first time that he lifts his voice up and he cries out. I think it's in frustration and in anger. And he says, you know me? And you know where I come from? Are you kidding me? You honestly think that you know who I am? The pride and the arrogance of the people in the crowd talking like this, it just, it's enough for him. And he says, you think you know who I am? He says, I'm not here of my own volition. You think that I just walked into Jerusalem from Galilee someday, but I didn't come here on my own. It wasn't my plans and my desires. What Jesus is saying is, if in order for you to actually know where I've come from, you need to know why I'm here. You need to know the one who sent me. Listen to how he, he says this, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him, him, you don't know. If you really want to know me, you want to know where I'm from, you can't just know where I'm from in terms of Galilee. You can't just know where my feet have walked. You need to know where I'm from, from. And I am from the God who is in heaven, and you don't know him. Because you can't know him. You can't understand who God is. You can't understand Jesus' relationship to God with anything that we've been given. We can't get to him by our own thoughts, by our own information gathering. We can't get to him by our own reasons or by the reasoning of others. But here's the good news. That doesn't mean that all that information is unattainable. And it doesn't mean that we can't know God. It does mean we can't know God on our own. But there is a beautiful, beautiful verse in here. It is, if you would like, a short and concise and very, very tightly packed presentation of the gospel. It's verse 29. We can't know God, but Jesus says, I know him, for I came from him, or I come from him, and he sent me. We should praise God here for two things. Two things. First, we can't know God, but Jesus can. We can't see God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he makes him known. We can't know God. There is no way that even through the scriptures that we can come to know God. But until Jesus comes down and shows himself to us now, because he was sent to us and he knows God, he can reveal God to us. We can know God rightly through Jesus Christ. 
It is the fact that Jesus knows God, that Jesus is one with God, that he has known him from eternity past and he will know him as father into eternity future, that he is equal with God, that he is one with God, that he does all things that the father shows him, that he is pleasing to God in all of his ways because he knows him perfectly and completely and he has been sent to us. He has been given to us. Not that we might sit in our ignorance, but that he might reveal him to us. The knowledge of God, even as Jesus portrays it to us, the knowledge of our Father, even as Jesus gives it to us, is still too much to fathom. We've talked about how much we don't know. Let us consume ourselves with just a moment at how much knowledge there really is in the world and how much God truly knows. This instant, take a five-minute gap here. He knows every single thought that's going through every one of your heads. He knows where every chemical is in your body and how it's going to affect you in the next five minutes. He knows every hair of your head, its angle, its momentum, its trajectory. He knows what it's going to be like when it falls from your head, where it's going to fall, and how long it's going to be before a vacuum cleans it up. He knows where every single rock in that parking lot is, and he's got them numbered. He knows where every single atom and molecule, the trillions upon trillions upon exabytes worth of molecules in your body and in this room are, their momentum, where they're going, how long it's going to take them to get there, and when they're going to arrive. He knows that for this room, he knows that for every room, and he knows it for every star, all of whom's names he has given them. That is the tip of what God knows. Because he doesn't just know that for this five-minute instance. He knows it for eternity past. Every minute of every day that eternity or that, that this world has existed, he knows all of the information for all at one time. He doesn't learn. He simply knows it. That is still but a tip of the iceberg. Because even in all that infinite knowledge, he knows all the things that could have happened if you hadn't spilled coffee on your pants this morning, if England, instead of standing against Hitler, had capitulated like Chamberlain wanted, if the Crusades had never happened, if Jesus had done works in Tyre and Sidon, what would have happened? He knows all of it. He knows what would have happened had Adam and Eve not sinned. He knows what would have happened had Cain not murdered. He knows all of the branchings of possibility that come out, the infinite upon infinite upon infinite possibilities there for all of history, and he knows it now, and yet but a tip of the iceberg. Because he not only knows now all of that stuff, he also knows what's going to happen for eternity future. The never-ending future, as you stand before him, he knows what you are like. He knows what will happen. He knows your comings and your goings. He not only knows where you're going to be at the start of eternity, he knows where you're going to be throughout eternity. There are infinite boxes, infinite times, infinite times. God knows all of them. It is unfathomable how great he is. And we think because we can look up a 13th century scholar, think we know something about God. You know nothing about God. But Christ is here to reveal that to us. And this is our hope. Because Jesus knows him, and because Jesus has been sent to us, we too can know him in a limited fashion, but we can honestly and truly know him. 
because Jesus has bridged an infinite gap that no one else can bridge. He can make the Father known to us. Philip, at the end of this gospel, will say, show us the Father, it'll be enough. And Jesus says, man, have you been with me so long and you still don't know to see me is to see the Father? I am the display and the image of the invisible God. So we can trust those in authority who continually point at the scriptures and say this tells us about Jesus. As Jesus is the sum of all the scriptures, we have a key by which we can read all of the scripture. And we can know that we're reading it rightly. We can know where heresy lies because we go off of the line that points directly to Christ in all things, as the sum of all things, as the pinnacle of all things, as the display of the glory of God. How do we know that Mormons are wrong and how do we know that, that, that Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong and liberal theology is wrong? We know that they are wrong because they don't point at a Christ who points to the glory of God and summing all things up on the cross, giving himself as our sin and redeeming us by his love and his resurrection. Therefore, we're no longer confused. We're not in abject darkness, feeling around on all fours, claiming that we're enlightened when we're not. Rather, we have been changed and moved from a kingdom of darkness and into a kingdom of light. And our eyes can't take in all of it, but they're taking in some. So what is our response to the great grace of the gift of Christ? Well, first, we can bail or we can believe. You can turn, tuck tail, and run. The authorities chose to do this. They chose to get rid of him and his knowledge. They chose to shut him up finally and tried to arrest him. Now they couldn't because God the Father, whom they can't fathom, is sovereign over all things and it wasn't Jesus' hour and so he kept them from actually seizing him. But nevertheless, they chose to reject him and his knowledge and the goodness that he brings. They wanted to kill him simply because that's the hammer that was afforded to them for their problem. You, friend, are given a different hammer. Jesus has been killed and he has been resurrected and you can't kill him again. So, you have a different hammer. And you can bail, maybe not by trying to kill him, but you can bail in pride and say, I know better. I hear what scripture says. I, I know what it's telling me, but I, I really don't care. I know better. I, I don't think that this bit's true. I, I kind of like this bit. I'll keep it. I, I don't really like what this is saying to me, though, and so I'm going to ignore it or at least push it way down deep so that its voice is barely audible from under the pile of laundry that I put it under. You can bail in your appearance. You can show up here, and you can simply run through it, play the part, Say amen at the right time. Sing the words nice and loudly so people think that you believe what you're saying. And you can fool all of us. But you reject wholly and fully trusting in Christ. You can bail simply by outright rejection. You can say, this isn't for me. It's not going to do what he says. I think that I know enough about God. I don't need God himself to show me. Listen, you bail on Jesus every single time. You think that you know what is best in your own knowledge, in your own person, by your own reasons, and by your own wits. Every time you sin and you say, it's okay, God wouldn't care that much. Every time you go to read through God's word and you skip over parts of it because you say, I've read that a lot. I'm sure that I know that already. 
you read it sloppily because I, I know that already. Every time, every time, your viewpoint of the world is formed more by Fox News than it is by Scripture. You are bailing on Christ. Every time, you judge another person, especially Christians, for how they act and what they say without knowing much or anything about their backstory, about the difficulties they're going through, about how far they have come in their life and how far God is yet going to move them. You are bailing on Christ who has done magnificent work in you. Let him do magnificent work in others. You can bail on him or you can believe. You see, faith isn't the opposite of knowledge. We don't believe because we can't know. That's not, that's not how this works. Faith is the right response to a lack of knowledge. We believe because we can't know. We believe because Christ has come to show us. As a man in John 9 will say very simply, all I know, I was blind, but now I see. His faith wasn't because he understood what had happened. His faith wasn't because he understood why it happened. His faith was simply because this is the change. This is all I can say. I believe because this is what has been given to me. Friends, these are simple people. They have no internet. They have no smartphone. They have no electricity. If they heard of a book they wanted to get, they can't go get it. And if they could get it, chances are good they couldn't read it. But they are just as knowledgeable about God as you or me. They know just as much as we do, which is to say nothing. And yet they can look at the work of Jesus and they can say, you know, that man, that man's somebody worth following. That man is somebody worth trusting. That man's somebody worth placing my life on the line for. You may be well-educated, you may be smart, and you may have more knowledge than most. But true knowledge only comes through true faith and trusting and believing in Jesus Christ. Trusting and believing that he has taken your sin on the cross, trusting and believing that he has been resurrected from the grave, trusting and believing that because he is Lord, he has the right way of living your life. And he is best at organizing and training you for how to do that. For through him you have access to the Father and all the knowledge that you will ever need. Listen to Christ as he speaks to us through the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, verse 32. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me, finds and obtains life and favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Friends, there's no reason for us to be ignorant 
anymore. Know Jesus, believe on him, entrust yourself to him, and you will both know and be known by God the Father, who dwells in inapproachable light and is unfathomable by you. But you will know him, and he will know you. And in that relationship, you have all the knowledge that you will ever, ever need. Let us pray. Father, we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was and is and is to come. For through your Son, you have given us true and lasting knowledge, not a knowledge of passing things, of statistics and facts, but of you and your love. Give us more of this. Let us know this Jesus better, who is the light of the world, so that we might, through him, better understand you, your glory, your majesty, your power, your might, your holiness, and your beauty. And in that knowledge, may we find life, love, joy, and peace forever. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.